This is David Veach, and you're listening to Passion for Health. This is your opportunity to hear from Alberta Health Services physicians and other healthcare providers, researchers, policymakers, community partners, and patients. To hear their stories and insights about what's happening to improve Albertans' confidence and satisfaction in their healthcare system. My guest today, Deb Runnels, has spent more than three decades working with the homeless and representing marginalized populations at all levels of government, Alberta Health Services, and internationally. Her experiences, both professional and personal, stoked another passion for patient and family-centered care. Deb continues to develop wellness and support programs in her role as Senior Manager at the Kirby Centre in Calgary. For the past five years, she has also volunteered her time as co-chair of the AHS Patient First Strategies Steering Committee and vice chair of the AHS Patient and Family Advisory Group. These efforts culminated in the release of the AHS Patient First Strategy in June 2015. I started by asking, what is patient and family-centered care? I think that patient and family-centered care is a way of being. It's a, a place where Uh, an entire system suddenly becomes about the people within that system, the staff at all levels, and patients and families who who require and rely on that system for their care, for their health, for their well-being. And it's a coming together of those two groups, but not as a system and as people, but as two groups of humanity coming together for one purpose, and that's for the best possible outcome and the best care for every patient and family that walks in the door. I think it's important to note that uh, the concept of patient and family-centered care isn't an Alberta invention, that it is a concept and a set of principles that is recognized internationally. Absolutely. I think that um, patient and family-centered care isn't even a concept. It's a way of being. There are people throughout Alberta, there are centers throughout Alberta that practice the best in patient and family-centered care. It's just never been identified as a strategy, as a goal, as a directive, as a way of being. And so as the entire world has looked at how do we care for patients best, it's been discovered that's through relationship. Medical errors happen less when there's a relationship and a rapport. Healing happens faster when there's a relationship and a rapport. So it was really about recognizing that actually making this a way of being for the entire system is the way to improve the system, but also to make a commitment. This is who you will see when you walk in. You will see people practicing care with you and your family at the forefront the whole way through. The first time I heard about patient and family-centered care, my first thought was, of course patients and families should be at the center of the healthcare experience, not just in Alberta, but around the world. The fact that there are uh, hospitals, facilities around the world that want to embrace patient and family-centered care suggests that that doesn't necessarily happen every time. Well, I think that it's it's very easy, as we all know, that, you know, we're all so busy. Everybody's going to the max, regardless of where you're living, what you're doing, um, what your lifestyle is, what your history is. Everybody is extremely busy. And so it's very, very difficult, I think, to to do your work every day and always focus outside. It's, it's so easy to get caught up in looking inside. Okay, how am I going to get this done? How do I achieve this? These are my deadlines for the day. These are my goals for the week. I've got these deliverables for the month. And lost in the middle of all that can be not only the person performing the work, but those who they're working with. And so actually, instead of calling it health services, calling it patient and family first, puts the priority back on the people who are walking in the front door and looking for 
medical care, medical guidance, uh, prevention, wellness, whatever brings them in those doors, making sure that we remember it's because of them that we're here and it's because of them that, that we're here to provide a service and to provide the best care we can. Is it sometimes process that gets in the way? Absolutely. I think that there's there's such deadlines to be met. There's goals to be achieved every day. And uh, you want that healthcare system to always be studying best practices, referring to research, growing, improving, because you want state of the art. When you walk in those doors, you want the best that's available to you. And all of that can really cloud remembering that there's a person standing in front of you saying, help me or serve me or care for me or teach me. And so we have to constantly remember okay, so what is this all about? It's about patients and families first. The focus on patient and family-centered care, is it a coincidence that that focus is more acute now with the growing demands on the healthcare system? Um, No, I don't think it's a coincidence. For sure, I think that if we don't address um, and prioritize patients and families now, we're in trouble. Um, those of us, me, who's becoming a boomer and is a boomer, um, we're all going to hit the healthcare system within a very short period of time with much higher needs than the system can accommodate right now. If we're looking at this work more preventatively and planning, having communication, having discussions about what people need, instead of assuming we know that what they need is a system, and just creating and developing. What we will actually see as patients and families is systems and processes and care developed with the patient's voice involved and therefore with an understanding of what patients expect and need when they walk in the doors. We'll talk a little bit about um, what patients need, but so far in this conversation, it really sounds to me like communication is the bedrock to all of this. Absolutely. And when you've got a doctor who's so pressured that every patient gets their allotted 15 minutes or 10 minutes, when you've got people sitting out in the waiting room tapping their toes, when you're trying to redirect people who are non-emergency back out into the community for medical care, how do you then make sure that that care is available so that they don't, again, trickle back into emergency? And so it's really about looking at at what is the system right now? How is it functioning? How isn't it functioning? And what is needed? And patients and families are the ones that know that the best. If we acknowledge that there are great pressures on the healthcare system to try to have the people within that system recognize and, and, and maybe change your behaviors uh, so that it's more patient and family centered focused. Uh, Is that not uh, difficult or can the two coexist? Like what is the, uh, how much work has to be done to take a healthcare system and try to embed the principles of patient and family centered care? I think that it's a lot of work, absolutely, because what you want to build is a foundation that will create a system that's going to be in place forever. We're not talking about flavor of the month. We're not talking about a strategy that will come and go or trying to engage the community in something that's all fluff. We're talking about a way of being and setting standards of care that will never shift or change but only improve. And I think the most important thing is to remember that people who get into the healthcare uh, world got into that because they wanted to care, because they wanted to make a difference and because they really truly believed they had something to offer. Um, As we all know, some of those driving forces in our beginnings can get lost in the middle and the end of what we do. And so reminding every single person who comes to work every day to provide care 
uh, to stand beside a bed for a minute and look down and picture themselves laying in it or picture their family members laying in it. If that in any way would change the care you're providing to that person in front of you, then you've got some growing to do. And always remembering that so that every day when people arrive to, to provide care, to do work, that they remember that every person in front of them could be them, could be a person they love. And to always remember what brought them to this work back in the beginning and always to be refocused on the caring that, that called to them when they first began. It's clear you're passionate about patient and family-centered care, but of course you have probably many passions, and, and one of them is uh, uh, helping homeless populations, marginalized populations. You've been doing it now for over 30 years, correct? Yes. Yep. Where does that work and the work that you're doing with patient and family-centered care intersect? So I think that in the work that I've done with the homeless for, for so many years, what I've seen is that there are so many systems not prepared. Um, lack of understanding, lack of education, lack of time to address and deal with somebody who is facing horrible, debilitating life circumstances. Um, we so often look at the homeless and we say homeless addictions, homeless mental illness, absolutely. But we, we sometimes forget it can be homeless divorce, homeless physical illness, homeless 85-year-old woman whose husband's died and, and she doesn't exist on paper because she's never had to. The circumstance around the word homeless makes it about um, the things that put them there instead of the people that are wearing the story. And it's critical that we understand that every single person who walks in any medical facility also is a story. And what brought them there doesn't matter so much as what we're seeing in front of us. And working with the homeless, I saw so many times medical needs, um, but so many other needs. We had one fellow who managed to pull off more than 400 visits to the Sheldon Schumer in one year. That was 400 touch points where possibly his life could have been changed if we had a system in place where caring for him um, more than just a wound um, or an addiction or unmedicated mental illness became the priority because he also was using the justice system, the shelter system, um, so many other systems all touch points where his life could have been changed. And so it's critical for us to look at people as a story and as a potential for us to impact positively, as frustrating as it can be, as sad and heartbreaking as it can be, um, and sometimes as devastating as it can be to work with somebody who is so lost, but remembering that underneath that is a person still seeking as are we all. It sounds like you really see your work with the patient and family-centered care steering committee as an extension of the work that you're doing with the homeless. Absolutely. I work at the Kirby Centre now, so we have a shelter for abused seniors. And watching people come in who have fled abuse, um, and abuse at any age is horrific. And when we see someone who come in comes in that are 70 or 80 years old and are having to try and figure out how to rebuild their lives, it's critical that we make sure that we close any gaps in their lives that are outstanding. Some of these people have not been allowed to seek medical care because they would have talked about what else is going on in their life. So um, making sure that we can close the gap from these systems and connect our people with people who will listen and who will understand and then be able to provide care so that each individual has an opportunity to rebuild their lives in whatever way they want. What can the health system do to help this population when they come through the doors? I think the big thing is that we, we need to go more upstream than that. What we need to do is make sure everybody's trained 
and has an understanding of the person that's walking in their door. Um, I do presentations. I presented to over a thousand people in the community last year. Um, I presented at SAIT to the graduating EMS class, um, to the first year medical residents. We need to make sure that people are comfortable and have an understanding that walking in, in that door is a person seeking care. The best care that you can give, regardless of what brought them there or what you see in front of you. And reminding everybody that that care, it takes no more time to provide excellent care than it does to provide care that is the basic that you can give to get someone out the door. And there are so many people who work with the homeless in the healthcare system, um, work with them so with such dedication and such commitment and passion to make sure that those lives are touched, that that care moment is remembered. Um, so that the person who walks back out the door, their life's been changed because for even a few minutes, they know they were truly the center of that care and it was about them. What are the obstacles of that happening? Is it a um, bias and stereotypes that maybe someone might not even aware, be aware that they have? Um, certainly as a social worker, um, we're all trained to understand that we've got biases and stereotypes. As, as individuals, we all do. Um, each of us our own as we were raised and as we've lived our life stories. And so certainly that plays into it, but you can also be aware of those and understand how to work with them and work around them. We're on a journey of learning from the day we're born till the day we leave. And so if we can always understand, there's opportunities to learn. Um, when I've worked with a homeless engineer, um, homeless doctors, homeless CEOs of oil and gas companies, you start to realize that a story written in someone's life isn't always because they've got the pen in their hand. The story can be written by the forces around them. And so we have opportunities to take that pen for a moment and to write some powerful, powerful, memorable moments in their healthcare moments. But to be aware of that, first of all, we've got to make sure that systemically staff understand that all the time pressures in the world shouldn't stop you from providing best care. And if they are, then we need to talk about improving that system. All the time in the world that you need to provide the best care should be the priority so that somebody feels they were heard and that, that medical moment became a life moment for them. I think of um, a program at Alberta Health Services where when a homeless individual comes through the door and doesn't have an Alberta health care card, doesn't have government issued ID, that there is support there to get them that identification. And we t interviewed a few people who had gone through the program, and I thought it was remarkable how their lives changed at that moment. Whatever they came in for, for their medical care, was tended to. But they got something a lot more, and, 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 and their lives uh, went off on a, a course that they couldn't even believe that they were able to uh, pursue. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that it's, you know, it's so important. I'm known as the uh, person who hugs the homeless. Everybody says that. And, and the reason for that is because these people are so rich in their own lives and their own experiences. Oh my gosh, they've survived something. I don't know that I could stand in front of you and say I, I, I would or I could. And so there are stories there and um, brilliant survival skills and histories and lives that if they're not honored, then we lose an opportunity to actually uh, be also turned in our own minds and lives by this person in front of us. I remember a homeless fellow years ago, um, he froze to death downtown quite a few years ago. 
Um, but I met with him and talked to him, and he was the scary guy downtown with the beard and the hair and talking to himself, and people would cross the street to avoid him. But what I do know about Robert is that he had a wife and two children who were killed in a car accident. And as they handed him those bodies, he walked away from his life, from his cognition, from his ability to even function anymore. And before he died, he said to me, Deb, when you die, there are going to be ripples in this universe of grief. When I die, there will be no ripples. Every time you tell my story, there will be ripples for my family and for myself. And I realized that we don't need to wait until someone passes and dies before we can send ripples of recognition and acknowledgement and care out to them. They can still be standing in front of us and have those moments. Must be incredibly rewarding work but you must take a lot home with you every night. Absolutely. I think that um, it, it amuses me when people say I leave work at work and home at home because um, as human beings um, filled with emotion and our own stories, um, our own capacity to care doesn't have a switch on it. So there's no possible way to go home and to turn off losing um, one of my homeless friends or, um, you know, seeing somebody in such horrible trauma come into the shelter. And so that's where it's really important that we also teach self-care, that we teach caring for ourselves and acknowledging our own pain when we hear these stories, acknowledging our own losses, um, acknowledging, oh my goodness, this is a trigger. That was that's what happened in my family. Um, abuse, um, loss, all of those things, grief and trauma, can be huge triggers in our own lives as we've experienced things. And so it's really important for people to have a system in place that lifts them up, um, that there be a safe place to go to cry, to just sit and be, and to also be able to go home and say, what do I need? Um, for me, it's camping, it's walking my dogs, but it's also just silence and feeling whatever I need to feel. Um, if we're told to bury uh, what we feel as professionals, we're not going to be professionals for very long. I know this is going off uh, the topic of patient family centered care, but I really want to know, how did you get involved in this work? Well, you know, it was coincidence. My husband and I were fairly newly married and had two little children and were living in Ontario. And I answered an ad in the London Free Press for group home parents. And we applied, they asked what experience we had. I told them about my life and he told them about his life and we were hired. And so at 23, had a, two little kids of my own and a group home with six young offenders in it who were between the ages of about 13 to 17. And I sure didn't know anything about young offenders with my kids being two and four. Um, and I didn't know anything about the world out there and youth crime and what kids had to do sometimes to survive. They were more than willing to teach me things that I needed to know and also didn't need to know. But what they did teach me is that when you love somebody, when you provide care, regardless of the story, lives change, um, trauma and grief can halt and heal. And so now I have 23 sons in their 40s who are living these full lives because simply out of ignorance, I just loved them because that's all I had to offer. My own four children grew up thinking that a family meant more stockings than a fireplace mantle could hold. And so they also have a capacity to understand, as do we all, to really look at the world around us and realize that we're community 
And we're not all healthy community, but we're still community and lifting each other up in whatever way we can. Uh, it's not about money and dollars all the time. It's about volunteering or just smiling when you walk beside someone on a sidewalk that you know is having a tough time. Those things can change someone's life. All you need is love. Did John, Paul, Ringo, and George have it right? I think they kind of were onto something. <laughs> the Brady Bunch has nothing on the Runnels family. Deb says at one time they had as many as 10 children living under their roof. When we return, Deb shares some personal experiences about the healthcare system that shaped her views on patient and family-centered care. And he looked at my granddaughter and he said, and so that's what we know medically, but I saw you coming in here holding her hands and helping her walk. And now I need you to tell me, who is your, who is your daughter? Who is she? Albertans now have a new tool to help them keep track of their medications through a mobile application. A Know Your Medications tab has been added to the latest version of the free AHS mobile app. This update provides touch-of-a-button access to resources to manage medications, including electronic and printable medication list tools, detailed information about safe medication use, and direct links to the Poison and Drug Information Service, otherwise known as PADIS. The AHS mobile app, which has more than 125,000 downloads, contains other tools including estimated wait times for emergency departments in Calgary and Edmonton, dates, times, and locations for influenza immunization clinics, contact information for HealthLink, and a healthcare locator resource. The single AHS app means Albertans can find official AHS content and functionality without sorting through the hundreds of thousands of available apps. Get the latest version of the free AHS mobile app for iPhones through the Apple App Store and for Android devices through Google Play. This is David Veach, and you're listening to Passion for Health, produced by Alberta Health Services. Deb Reynolds is having a significant impact on the health system, and one of the reasons is because she's actually outside of the health system, and she says this gives her perspective on what needs to get done. When uh, six years ago I heard of the opportunity to uh, become part of this patient and family group that I'm involved in and that brought me to this work, uh, I realized that it was a chance for me to represent my healthcare stories, the healthcare stories of the homeless and those I work with. I realized that whether you're within the healthcare system or outside of it, you're still within the healthcare system. And so to me, it was an opportunity to look at the system and have a voice on behalf of so many. But what amazed me when this group first began and patients and families were invited to have involvement within Alberta Healthcare was how open and thirsty Alberta Healthcare Services was for that input. Um, many of us weren't sure was this going to amount to anything? Is this tokenism? Is it to say, well, patients had a look at this? And what we found out very quickly uh, was that absolutely not. Patients and families' voices are being integrated into Alberta Healthcare Services at all levels. We're involved in hiring. Um, executive staff. We're involved in reviewing policy before it comes out. We're involved in creating policy and looking at things even before it's developed. And that's powerful because that means that we're not saying, well, patients and families have looked at this. We're saying patients and families have built this. 
and therefore it's our healthcare system. It's not a system we seek out or go to. It's one we're embedded in and will continue to be embedded in um, from this day forward because of this strategy. For you, this work began in 2010, correct? Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about how much, what sort of work that you were doing over the past five years, really kind of culminating in the launch of the uh, Patient First strategy back in June? Well, starting with the patient and family advisory group, um, we were looking at consultations that were brought forward. And there was definitely a growing time where the system itself and those coming forward were hesitant. They weren't sure what this group of, you know, 20 people were sitting there for and looking at them. And what, what, what did we want? And it took some time for word to spread that what we wanted was an opportunity to partner with them in making sure that everything that was developed and embedded within this system actually uh, was developed by patients and families, reviewed by patients and families. What did these meetings look like? So it started, our first meeting was a sticky note meeting where Patients and families just came forward and divided up what we thought our role should be. What should this group be? And it was determined then that it needed to be a group of patients and families who were willing to commit massive amounts of time sometimes in engaging with the system at all levels, um, urban and rural, so every voice is represented, in being sure that when the consultations come forward, they're presented to us with questions. Um, each group comes forward and says, what do you think of what we're developing? Um, actually, is there a patient that'll sit on our development committee from here forward? Um, we've had some groups come forward four or five times just to continually have that voice involved in every level of development. Until now, we've got groups waiting to come to our group. So I started with that group, and then some of those consultations actually call out for patients to get involved one-on-one. -on -one. And so I got involved in doing um, quite a bit of that, and I'm really blessed the Kirby Center recognizes that every time I sit on one of these committees, I'm represent, representing our clients, representing an agency that provides care. And so I'm, you know, honored to be able to do this as I need to. And so as I moved forward through my history with this group, I realized that we were doing patient and family centered care from day one. And the reason we were was because these groups kept coming forward. They were coming to us because they already were doing it. They already were embedding uh, the voice of patients and families in the work. And the Calgary South Health Campus is a great example of that. They had patients in every level of development. Uh, the Children's Hospital has the kayak group where patients and their families were in the simplest thing is designing signs and room colors, but also to policies, procedures, programming, um, uniforms. And what that meant was that when you walk into either of those facilities and so many others now, you walk into a place that you can feel, it's tangible, the difference. Um, and what you can recognize is that that difference is about you as you walk in the door. For the patient first strategy, how many Albertans did you consult with? Oh, I mean, it's just endless and it's not stopping. It's been ongoing. The patients and families have been involved in this for uh, for years um, because it's not just about putting a building up. It's about what that building needs to look like uh, within the children's hospital. You know, their pets mattered. Oh, do we need a pet room? Um, you know, colors matter. Um, you've got colors that will actually irritate certain patients and colors that will soothe other patients. So. 
So it's, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of patients and families that have been involved in this from the very onset of going from allowing each site to develop their own to actually we need an overarching strategy. Now I've heard a couple stories that you have mentioned about your own experience with the healthcare system and what you needed and what you wanted to hear or needed to hear or what you appreciated about hearing. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about, let's start with uh, the birth of your granddaughter three years ago. Uh, I have a three-year-old granddaughter who uh, has severe cerebral palsy. And so when she was born, um, we were told that with something like cerebral palsy, you don't know the outcome when they're infants. It's as she grows that we'll start to be able to see what are going to be some of her challenges, what are her gifts and blessings, and then um, to be able to have the care put in place that she's going to need. So the doctor that we were working with at Children's Hospital met with my daughter and knew my granddaughter really well and said, we'll meet once she's over a year so that we can actually talk about who she is and what you'll be facing for the rest of her life. And so as that uh, year wound down, we um, we knew the appointment was coming up. So my daughter came back from that appointment in tears and she said, mom, it was the most powerful thing I've ever been through. Because what happened was she went in to meet with the neurologist at Children's Hospital. And in the course of that conversation, the neurologist opened a very thick file and he listed off all of the things that they now knew about my granddaughter, um, from epilepsy and quadriplegia to all kinds of different diagnoses around speech and mobility and eyesight, just everything. And what were your feelings at that point, your daughter's feelings? My daughter said, Mom, every time he listed off another diagnosis, I felt him ripping her out of my arms and she said it was devastating I I just didn't know what to do but he was just doing his job he needed to say that and she needed to know it because the rest of of my granddaughter's life is going to be around ensuring her parents put her very best opportunities in place and that's only going to be through knowledge and so those hard messages were a gift to each of us because we then knew, okay, now where do we go from here? Our path was drawn. But the most powerful thing was when he looked at my daughter and closed the file, and he looked at my granddaughter and he said, and so that's what we know medically, but I saw you coming in here, holding her hands and helping her walk, and now I need you to tell me, who is your, who is your daughter, who is she? And he allowed my daughter to tell him about the glorious things this little girl's doing, the amazing steps forward that she had made at that time and continues to make. And by closing that file and listening to her, my daughter said, I felt him hand her back to me. And she said that was the most powerful thing. And what my daughter then said was she now has a partner for life. She has a man she can trust. She has a doctor she can count on to be brutally honest when that's what's needed, but to also partner with her in ensuring that the best of care is always given to my granddaughter. And I think the most powerful thing for me as a patient and family advocate, but also as a grandmother, is knowing that it didn't take any more time for him to do this. It didn't take any more time for him to close that file and unite with my daughter in saying, but you tell me about her. But what he did do was walk away knowing he had provided the best care possible because he listened. Doesn't it get down to the point that that early part of that conversation your granddaughter was a patient. Right. For the second half of that conversation, 
your granddaughter was she was a person was the person absolutely and my daughter was a person and he was a vulnerable person because that's what this all comes down to is to be able to let caring actually exude out of you you you're taking a step in vulnerability there's risks there this person could hurt you this person could hurt you by not making it by not succeeding by not achieving what you'd hoped um my daughter could be horribly angry at him for the things he'd said. Vulnerability is a risk, but when you're a patient, you're vulnerable. You're walking in with a need, whatever that is, and you're very vulnerable. But when the other side also becomes vulnerable, then there's no sides anymore. Now we're partners and we're gonna walk into whatever this healthcare process is and this medical moment together. So that's a situation that really illustrates when patient and family-centered care is delivered and what it means to your daughter, your whole family. Right. I'm sure that you've seen experiences, maybe even experienced something personally that uh, when when it doesn't happen. Absolutely. Um, I think that we need to realize that although we like to call Alberta Health Services um, and the work that's done a system, because we're talking about individuals, there there's also personalities, there's errors, we're human. Um, and so, I think the most important thing is the development of the patient experience strategy within Alberta Health Services, but also patient concerns. Many people feel, I think, in some systems that they can't complain or raise a concern because they're, they fear repercussions. And we sure don't want repercussions when it's around our, our health care. But um, I think that, uh, you know, when I think of two years ago, um, I had spinal surgery. And on the evening of the spinal surgery, what happened was I was in the bed by the door to the hallway and I heard the nurses talking about someone that was going to be coming in and trying to plan for how to accommodate this person. So the nurses were in the hallway and planning how to provide care for a new patient that was coming in. Uh, when that woman and her husband came in, I recognized them as a couple that I'd worked with in the past. And I didn't want to cause them any conflict or agony or pain in their own medical journey of knowing that someone worked with, who worked with them in another field was also present. And so I uh, got up out of the bed after spinal surgery and went out into the hallway and said to the nurses, you know, they're very upset very agitated. Um, the husband had been asked to leave, although my husband had been invited to stay. And so I said to the nurses, I can't stay in there. It'll cause them great pain to see me here and could really impact their healthcare um, experience. So the nurses offered me a room at the end of the hall that had two beds in it, but it had been closed. Um, one bed belonged to the neurosurgeon or the neurosurgery unit that I was on and the other bed belonged to another unit. So I went into that room and went to sit on the bed. One of the nurses said, don't sit on the bed. Um, and I, I asked why not, and she said, well, we can only give you one set of sheets a day unless something has happened to the sheets you're on, so we'll bring your bed in. And so I sat in the chairs while the nurses, who were very apologetic and very kind, uh, took that bed out and brought my bed in, and then I got into bed. And, um, and so that really brought to light to me that there was something going on here. Uh, not about the nurses themselves because they were very apologetic. And so when I had gone home and was healing from my spine surgery and so on, I then contacted the Office of Patient Concerns and I explained to them kind of what unfolded while I was there. And the woman that I was speaking to was incredibly supportive in hearing 
you know, how that had unfolded for me as a patient, but also in recognizing that um, as a social worker and someone who worked in the community with those living in poverty and homelessness. And she asked me, you know, what could have happened? What could have been done differently? What do you need? And so because I'm a big picture thinker, I, uh, I said, you know, I, th- I saw a number of touch points there where there could have been different outcomes. Um, first of all, my husband had been invited to stay for the night. Um, the husband and wife became very agitated that he had to leave because they weren't within the free zone downtown. He had no way to get back to the shelter he was staying at. And so that was causing a lot of distress. Um, and so I said, couldn't they have been offered that room that I was put in for the night until morning when, um, you know, there'd be an opportunity to do some planning and case management for them? Um, Couldn't the nurses have been feeling empowered enough to be able to say, tuck into that bed, you just had spinal surgery and, you know, we'll look after you the best we can. So to me, I thought this is more systemic. It's bigger picture. We're not talking about the individuals who are there because it was causing them great distress to try and work their way through this shift, but rather it was about somehow they had the message that they couldn't let me have a second set of sheets, something so simple. And I later found out there's no um, policies on this whatsoever. So what it is talking about is empowerment and making sure that those who are frontline, those who who are doing the work, those who are, you know, meeting the patients every hour of every day, feel empowered to make simple decisions, very simple decisions sometimes, but decisions that will change a patient's outlook, um, can change patient care, can change patient's healing sometimes, and certainly change a patient's uh, view of a medical experience and interaction. Stories like this one are feeding into an Alberta Health Services workforce strategy called the People Strategy, slated for release in the coming months. The People Strategy is designed, in part, to empower physicians, employees, and volunteers to make local decisions that are in the best interests of patients, clients, and their families. When we return, Deb talks about the consultation process and what Albertans said they want from their healthcare system. People with minor injuries and illnesses may end up in the emergency department because they don't know where else to go. If you're not sure where to go, we're here to help. Call HealthLink to find out more about your healthcare options or visit ahs.ca backslash options. I'm David Veach and you're listening to Passion for Health. The Patient First strategy was developed after Alberta Health Services consulted with hundreds of patients and families about what they need from their healthcare system. Deb Reynolds was involved in many of these conversations and she was taking notes. I think the biggest thing is um, medical speak, as I'll call it. Um, Taking documents that are created by medical professionals in a language that medical professionals understand and making sure that a non-medical uh, person can understand it, can read it. Consultations with even around communication with patients um, post-surgery, post-treatment written by the wise hand of a medical professional, but not written in a way that somebody can take that and go, I get that, I understand. Um, I was in Washington at the uh, patient and family conference a few years ago, and there was a woman presenting who took her daughter into a doctor's office 
and was given these long, long diagnoses about what was wrong with her daughter's eye. And she said she walked out of there petrified, um, thinking her daughter was probably going to lose her sight until she got back to her family doctor and found out what it was was a scratch on her eye. And so, you know, understanding that harm can be done when we use language that that people can't understand. Um, and also errors can be made. If people don't understand what they've got, what's wrong with them, um, and how to move forward, then they're not going to own their care. They're not going to own healing. And they're also not going to understand prevention. Do you think that there is more acronyms in AHS than there are physicians? Such as AHS. <laughs> Such as AHS. What are, what are some of the other things that were uh, raised in the consultations? I think more than anything, when some of the consultations would come forward, we would see people presenting to us done deals. So this is our strategy for this, or this is our policy for this, and we'd like your stamp of approval on it. And it's really hard to look at something that didn't have a patient eye on it and say, well, actually the whole thing kind of doesn't fit because you can see that there's no patient's eyes on this as you know, as it stands today. And so therefore it's lacking in some really important areas, um, whether it's discharge. Discharge um, guidelines work well, unless you're sleeping on a mat in a, on a shelter floor, or you're someone who's senior and living alone and isolated. Um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. So, um, so sometimes it was, definitely things that had been developed and we're looking for a seal of approval as a pro as opposed to looking for um, come and join us we need to have your voice in this because we're developing it I think some of the other uh, things that we saw with the consultations coming forward were um, you know different groups that would come forward and we're looking for um, kind of magic answers you know this is what we've got what do we do? That's not gonna be solved in a, an hour long or 45 minute consultation. And so saying actually this needs to go back and have um, patient or family members involved in looking at it um, longer term. It, this isn't something that can be looked at in a, you know, a fairly short consultation. If I can remember this off the top of my head for the um, recommendations or priorities of the patient first strategy, uh, one was treating people with uh, uh, respect and dignity. Um, one was improve communications. One was adopt a team-based approach to care. And you kind of alluded to the fourth one earlier, and that's uh, improve transitions from one care environment to another. Um, those four, does that encapsulate most of the feedback or most of the common themes that you heard? Absolutely. Um, I certainly think that when, when we're looking at what is being brought forward for patients and families to look at, the more that you see um, different consultations coming forward, the more you understand, first of all, how diverse you know this giant organization is, and you can see different consultations come forward that are, you know, just truly trying to seek direction. And it doesn't matter what area they're coming from. If you're bringing the patient voice in, there's dignity and respect in that because you're already partnering and collaborating before you've even developed anything. Um, if you're moving forward and want patients and families engaged in various areas of your work, that collaboration and partnership will ensure transitions go smoothly. And the more that we have partnership and collaboration, the less chance there is that there will be errors, lack of communication, miscommunication, because people will be involved in their care from beginning to end. 
all of my writing instructors always told me that simple is better and it's more powerful. And I think of some of the solutions that, uh, uh, or, or ideas that have come forth from uh, uh, patient and, and family-centered care. And so many of them are just so simple. Um, you know, I believe it started at the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton with the uh, installation of whiteboards in all the patient rooms so you can see the names of all your health care providers on there and if they're not around you could write questions um, you're worried about your child and you have a question and there's no healthcare provider right there and you can put just write down your question mm -hmm. and get an answer well I think that um, you know most of the solutions are simple it really isn't difficult to suddenly look at patients and see them um, through a lens that you already know what to do and what they need because the systems are in place to get you that information. Even NOD, right? Another acronym, but name, occupation, duty. They were talking um, at one of the consultations that we had about how many people might walk into a patient's room in a day, how many medical professionals, and how many people from within the system between nurses and dietitians and any therapies that you're having and the cleaning staff. And so, you know, you're talking dozens of touch points a day and so if a person has name occupation and duty when they come in your room already you know who you're talking to so that you're not telling somebody um, who's just wanting to clean under your bed <laughs> that you've got to go to the bathroom <laughs> um, and it, it clarifies for the patients but it also builds rapport because you know who's in your room if you're medicated or recovering or healing or traumatized whatever has brought you there um, trying to remember faces and names is almost impossible. Having a whiteboard at the foot of your bed that you can clearly see with the name of your nurse for the day on it already simplifies things. It clears things up for seniors, you know, anyone who's got capacity issues. So most of the the solutions are simple. The money and the time is so far upstream that it really isn't going to impact out outcome as long as policies and procedures are in place that guide the development of these things. It's not a costly venture to encourage people to remember why they're there and why they care. How far down the road are we on this journey? Well, you know, from initial conversations, it's been years ago, to the release of the Patient First Strategy, which is kind of the birthplace. We're now on the stepping forward of implementation. So what we're starting to see is guidelines being developed. So new policies and procedures now in, have this involved in it. So patients and families are involved in developments of everything, like as I'd mentioned earlier, in hiring executive staff. So what we actually have now is from this point forward, development will include it. And then we're working on making making sure that there's strong strategies in place to uh, to create the change um, in those places that were already up and running. What are you hearing from the front lines? Certainly, uh, when I did a presentation a couple of months ago at the Shades of Grey conference, um, so many of the those present were talking about how they're so thrilled to hear that what they do is being recognized. And we're talking about, you know, nurses and, you know, tens of thousands of people who are already doing this and now are being recognized for it. So we need to make sure that we continue to recognize it. We can't ever get complacent about doing something well. We can't let that be our norm. We've got to always question, why are we doing this well? What's going right here? 
it's too easy to only go, oh, something's gone wrong and be reactive. Let's be proactive. If there's pockets of satisfaction from patients that's coming in, what are they doing over there that they're doing so well? Patients are giving feedback that this is amazing. And we always need to question, not the pockets of weakness, but also the pockets of great success. I was going to ask, how do we measure whether patient and family-centered care is being embraced throughout the organization and, and, and patients recognize it? How, is there a measurement where we're going? Is it basically patient satisfaction surveys that will really tell us whether this is effective? That'll be part of it for sure. Um, Definitely getting that feedback from patients, but then what you're measuring is just that one experience, not necessarily is it better or is it different. A lot of the measurement will be also coming from internally. What is staff satisfaction? Is there a change in staff turnover? Is there less use of EAPs and benefits because people aren't burning out? So it's that um, partnership and those conversations that will actually um, measure success. There'll always be people who are not happy with medical experiences. There will always be people who, for one reason or another, weren't able to provide patient family-centered care today. It doesn't mean that that person or those people can't come together for resolution. And so it's gonna be about resolving conflict and issue, safe places to have those conversations, and always making sure that we lift up those who do it well. That was a great answer, but I must tell you that you used an acronym. I know. <laughs> Employee assistance programs. <laughs> I had never met Deb Reynolds or even talked to her before she came to the studio for our interview. I was, for all intents and purposes, a stranger to her. Yet when our interview was done and she was preparing to leave the studio, she said goodbye, not with a handshake, but with a hug. A big, warm, sincere hug. That is truly her trademark. This is David Veach, and you've been listening to Passion for Health, produced by Alberta Health Services. You can follow us at ahs.ca backslash podcast and provide your feedback and comments. We would love to hear from you.